Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Jazz Violin Podcast today. I'm chatting to Martin Taylor. starting off with my chat about my patreon account if you want to support the jazz violin podcast you can do so via patreon it's a simple way for you as the listener to support me the content creator you know if you love the jazz violin podcast and every month you're thinking to yourself hey when's the next episode coming out and uh, you feel like you can help then please do you can give as little as one pound slash dollar slash euro per month um, and every little helps. And remember, if you are able to support the podcast, then you are paying that forward to the people who cannot. You know, I always want to make this thing free. It's hopefully a useful resource for the global jazz violin community. So, yeah, if you want to support us, please do so on Patreon. Also, on Patreon, you can get involved with my jazz violin practice club where we meet up every week. We practice jazz violin together. You've probably heard me talk about this before. It's a load of fun. Everybody who's a member enjoys themselves and learns at the same time. It's all about practicing together over the internet. And you might think, how does that work? And I am telling you, it works. In fact, I think it works better in some regards than it does in real life. Sometimes, just for some things. Anyway, enough of that. Today, I'm super excited to be talking to the living legend that is Martin Taylor. Martin is a guitarist who's now based in Scotland who toured the world with Stefan Grappelli. And occasionally I like to do episodes on here where I talk about some of the, the past greats of jazz violin. It's not just about um, the current musicians out there doing it. I love to take a bit of time to chat about you know some of these great musicians who have come before us. And yeah, Martin was a, an amazing guest. I had a great chat with him about how he first got involved with Grappelli, uh, you know, what life was like on the road with Grappelli in the studio and all that stuff and some nice stories just uh, about Grappelli as a person and about Grappelli's start in the uh, musical world as well. So it's, yeah, it's a really interesting episode. Please enjoy. See you on the other side. How's it going? Hey, not too bad. How are you? Okay. So, so whereabouts are you? I'm in London, South London. All right, where? Uh, just moved to sort of Broccoli area recently. Where's that? Um, it's like near New Cross. Oh yeah, New South Cross. Southeast. Yeah. And where you're? You're Scotland. I, I'm in Scotland, but yeah. uh, both my parents from South London, from Battersea and Wandsworth. Ah, okay. Before they were fashionable. 
<laughs> when you wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always check. You've lived in Scotland a long time, right? Uh, most of my life. Yeah, so I can hear that in your obviously in your accent. Yeah, but I I grew up near um, I grew up in Harlow, so I, was, yes. I went. To, that's where I went to school. And my parents, my dad was in the road business, and the new town was being built, and he built the roads, or he's part <laughs> involved in that. <laughs> yeah, I I actually like I hear your accent because I'm I grew up in Scotland. Oh, did you? But I've I've sort of not got well half and half. I grew up in Hull. Born in Hull and grew up in Scotland, so I've got this sort of hybrid accent. So I hear your accent, and I, th- you know, I, f- I can hear the same thing. All right, yeah. It, it depends who I'm talking to as well. <laughs> right. Okay. Whereabouts yeah. in Scotland did you live? Edinburgh. All right. Yeah, I'm yeah. in Perthshire, which is not not that far up the road. No. Yeah. Okay. I've got a lot of family in Perth actually. All right. So yeah, thanks so much for for agreeing to chat to me. And I've been doing this for the past couple of uh, of years the the jazz violin podcast i've just been mainly talking to jazz violinists about how they got their start in or their musical start mm. um but it's become a thing you know i i I, li- I like to focus on some of the greats as well uh and obviously we can't do that because uh but i can't i can't talk to grappelli so um <laughs> well I, you can uh, talk to him through me <laughs> yeah exactly that's what i that's what i'm hoping for anyway yeah um but yeah, and I think a lot of the the listeners would probably be really interested to hear just well actually first of all your story. Um your you know your background, how you got into playing mm-hmm. and and then all yeah about your your work with. Sure. I mean, I guess you've also worked with a lot of uh, a bunch of different violinists, so it might be interesting to chat about that as well, but Yeah, I worked with um Sven Asmussen. Yeah. I worked with Claude Fiddler Claude Fiddler Williams from Kansas City. Um, uh, I was on a concert once with Jean Luc Ponty, but I didn't really work with him. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I I, yeah. I played on a lot of those records that Stefan did with Yehudi Menuhin as well. So yeah, you've done your first first share of time with the uh, jazz violinists then. <laughs> yeah, and of course Didier Lockwood I worked with a lot and. Yeah, I was aware of that. Yeah, we made some albums. We made a really good album together called uh, Waltz Club. Well, wait, um, I think I have heard. I, I've heard an album with you and Didier, and it's but there's it's really long. It's oh, yeah. got loads of tracks on and it. It's is all it waltzes. That? Maybe it is that one. Yeah, I think it's the oh, only well. one I did with him, and. Uh, oh, Marcel Azola on accordion. Ah. Mm. It's a very nice record. He did it because um, he wanted to get out of his uh, recording contract with his with his label, and the only ah. way to do that is was to make a record that he didn't think would sell very much. <laughs> and it's kind of it's, it's, it's a bit like the producers, you know. And yeah. <laughs> you know the movie The Producers. It was a yeah. bit like that. It was supposed to be a flop. And it was such a good record, and people loved it. There's because nothing else like it. Was it pre-written waltzes, or was it waltzes that you guys wrote? Or it was mostly written waltzes, but I wrote one of them. I wrote a musette called Musette for a Magpie. Mm. Ah, he, he wrote one, and I think Marcel. Wrote, I think we all wrote wrote one. Jean Philippe Verre was on bass. He played with Stefan um, in latter years after after me. Very good okay. Yeah. 
Hey, as soon as we stop stop talking, I'm probably going to go and put that on nice and loud in my in my music room. Hey, so would you would you mind telling me your you know how you got your your musical start? Well, the spark really came at a very very early age because my my father was a jazz musician. I played the double bass, but he actually took up music shortly after I was born. So he was about thirty before he actually played anything, and he got a guitar and started to play and he was very inspired by by Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli but also a lot of lot of American jazz obviously and so I picked up his guitar when I was about four or five he showed me a few chords on it and because I used to hear this music being played in the house all the time on and on Saturdays his friends used to come along and um They'd all jam, you know, in the, in the front room, and I just thought I'd really like to, I'd really like to do this. And so he showed me a few chords on the guitar, and it's it's about the only thing that I've ever done in my life that I just kind of got it immediately, and it, it came it came easy, and I started to um, progress very very quickly. And also, I, I understood improvising. I mean, all the music that we had was in the house was jazz. And I can remember my dad playing a, a recording of Django, and, and I was quite fascinated by it. And my dad saying to me, well, I was probably about six years old, and saying, oh, when it gets to that bit, he said, Django's improvising there. And I remember saying, well, what's what's that? And, and because my dad wasn't a schooled musician, he, he said, "He said, well, they're playing the same chord sequence behind him, but he's he's making up a melody on the spot." And it was a brilliant explanation of of improvisation, and that's what I actually do with a lot of my students now. Is I I take them back to that because some of them have gone to college, and I have to kind of <laughs> take some of that out of them because they've overcomplicated things. I just said, make up your own melody on the same, you know. Before you get into improvisation and and, and analyzing things, um, just see if you can come up with a counter melody to go with it. A variation, variation on a theme. That's all it is. It's been around for hundreds and, and hundreds of years. Yeah, so that's that's how I got started. I was surrounded by the music, and Django and Stefan were particularly um, a big big influence because even though my dad was playing like. Duke Ellington and uh, a lot of the, the, the American Louis Armstrong, a lot of the early early jazz players. When I heard Django play, there was bearing in mind that I was just a little kid at the time. There was just something about it that connected with me, and I remember saying to my dad, um, "I don't know what it is about when Django plays the guitar, but it's like he's talking directly." So I didn't really sort of understand that, but of course. I just felt this connection, whereas some I could I could hear somebody playing a guitar very well, but when I heard Django, it's as if that music was really, really connecting directly with me. It, it was as if he was talking, and of course he was such a a wonderful melodic improviser. We often think of Django as, uh, and a, a lot of guitar players that like to play in that style and do it really really well. Uh, especially if they haven't come from a jazz background, have come from maybe a, a, a rock background, got into the music, and you know, they have a, a fantastic facility on on the guitar, 
and which of course Django did as well. But he he kept that in reserve a lot of the time and just used it when it was kind of needed. Everything was very melodic with Django. So it was really because of Django and Stefan that I got into playing and my dad playing all those those records. So it wasn't like it wasn't like you know what what got you into jazz because it, I just grew up with it. I mean I was I was listening to it in, in you know before I was born. <laughs> yeah, it was around the house. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting you saying that you got the concept of improvising from an early from an early age because some some people find it really difficult, you know. Especially, I mean, I, you know, we've got a lot of listeners who are violinists who are, I mean, and then some of them might be classical violinists who are, you know, interested in in getting into improvisation, but find just the idea of 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 it just coming out from nowhere really difficult. But you you said that for you that that was quite that just was okay you didn't you never mm. that came to you quite naturally well it doesn't come from nowhere because it's because it's a vocabulary so mm-hmm. you know you can say well how did you learn to speak english um uh, <laughs> did you did you study it you know the, no you yeah. you were spoken to in, in that or whatever your your mother tongue is you were spoken that and you get to identify things and I, th- I think that's something I figured out quite early because I would listen to Django's Django playing and I'd pick up the guitar and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't play his, his solos, but every so often he'd play a little line that I liked and I'd figure out how to play that on the guitar. But then I realized you could actually use that same phrase uh, somewhere else on another tune that still that had that same kind of, um, uh, a chord sequence that came same kind of turnaround and everything. I, I wasn't thinking in those ways, but I just thought, oh, that little thing I learned that, that'll fit here. And mm. so it's just it was getting a, a vocabulary together, and then kind of learning the the grammar. And of course, when you're young, when you when you're very young and you you start to build up a a facility for for playing and, and getting around, then then you can't stop playing. You play far too many notes. <laughs> Yeah. So start playing, playing loads of things, and then not till a bit later you go oh, chill out, take a little, take a little breath. And if you listen to Django's playing, and of course Stefan as well, got all those beautiful breaths when they're playing. And if you play a stringed instrument, because we don't have to take a breath and bring in some air so that we can play that, uh, get some air back into the instrument again. Um, it's very easy for us just to get really quite carried away. I mean, long lines can be be great, sound, sound fantastic. But sometimes, and as I've got older now, I'm I actually fit the notes around the silence. <laughs> I kind of start like from the point of silence of zero, and I don't. I know that I don't have to fill it all out. I just fit the notes around that silence. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I was—I can't remember who I was speaking to recently. They had a thing of like, it's like, and it's this has stuck with me. It's like if you think you're about, you know, if you think it's time to play, it's not time to play, and then think again, and it's definitely not time to play. And now it's time to play. You got to second guess your second guess yourself twice, and then it will be the right time. Um, so you know, interesting. When do you know you, you say that there was a like a, a, a time when you maybe were playing loads of notes <laughs> and then you realize that um you know that it's, it's it's more about silence you know you know when, when was that in your in your career that that do you feel like that happened to you 
or about three I, weeks you know, ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I I knew from a, a long time ago, but sometimes you still get a bit carried away. Yeah, um, yeah. And you know, I, I've got unfortunately I've got some records that prove that uh, from from years ago, uh, some records. But uh, yeah, but you know, Stefan used to play very long lines a, a lot of the time. He played very, you know, he used to used to really kind of um, play very extended phrases, and it was incredibly exciting because. Stefan had amazing time and his his timekeeping, his phrasing. He played everything bang on, uh, bang on mm. time. I have a tendency to play slightly behind the beat, um, which is more of a, um, an American influence thing. You'll hear that with a, with a lot of players of just that little bit behind. It's done in, intentionally and it gives them another kind of swing, whereas Stefan would, would play way, you know, play bang on top of mm. something. So when we played lines together, I would have to adjust that because if I played uh, unison lines with um, saxophone players and, and there was also that little bit of delay with them, even if they weren't playing uh, way behind. But Stefan, you know, he had this, you know, I'm not a violinist, but I was fascinated by his bowing technique. And as somebody that doesn't <laughs> doesn't really know anything about bowing techniques, but I have worked with other other violinists. I mean, I would be sitting here, and Stefan's Stefan's hand would be would be here, so I was right next to his bow going up and down there. And he played this. This is a something for, for you violinists. I can remember that he played with with the bow very very loose. He hardly mm. tightened it up at all. And he had very little rosin on there, and he played quiet. That was another. That was a real key to his playing. And he told me that when, in the Hot Club, Hot Club of France, when they f first started to record, the way they used to record in those days was they would just have one microphone in the middle, a bit like all the bluegrass players play, the mic in the middle, and you would you'd adjust your dynamics by how close or far away you were from the microphone. So when it was turned for, your turn for the solo, you move closer up uh, to the mic. And he told me that uh, he had a different way of playing um, mm. when he was playing live. And he discovered another way of playing when they started to record. Um, what happened was um, the... the I guess we call him an impresario, um, Charles Deloney. He kept saying to Stefan and, 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 and Django that for them to come and make a record, to record something. And of course, they'd listened to records, but they, they'd never made a record. They didn't know what that involved. And because it, it was basically, it was, it was Stefan's band. It wasn't Django's band. Hmm. Was, Stefan put the whole thing together. And... So he, Charles Deloney was speaking with Stefan about doing this recording. And uh, he, he kept, Stefan kept saying to Django, he said, no, I, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want it. You know, it's, I, I don't think he said uh, it will never catch on, but it was something like that. You know, uh, I don't know, uh, recording. But um, eventually they had, they got a date to, to do it. And it was in, it was in a, an apartment in Pigalle just up the road from where Stefan used to live. He showed me 
uh, once. And so they got there and Django wasn't there. And he, he hadn't shown up, but he, he would do that sometimes. So, so I thought, okay, uh, I'll go and look for him. So Stefan went to every single billiard hall uh, in sort of Montmartre and Pigal area. Finally, he found him playing billiards. And Stefan said, look, we're all waiting for you. You know, we, you, uh, We've got everything set up, we're gonna record. And he said, oh, I don't wanna do it. And he, he really was adamant that he didn't, Django was adamant that he didn't want to do this recording. And then finally, Stefan managed to talk him round to it and he took him there. He went in and he sat down. Joseph had his guitar for him and he, and he sat down and uh, he didn't really feel like doing it. And then they recorded and I've got a complete blank here because I can't remember what the first uh, track was that they recorded. You'd probably be able to help me out here. Uh, um, was it, is it, uh, uh, it's not. No, I'm, 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 the word Daphne is in my brain, but I don't think it's no, not that. It wasn't. It it's, wasn't. It's, a, it's, a, it's an American tune, and yeah. it's like... It's like an American you, standard. I've had the same... I've got the same thing. I don't know if you get this, but like when you have to remember a name or a word, it usually goes. <laughs> but I know the song. Is it not... It's like one, four as a dominant, back to one in A flat. Is it that one? <laughs> the whole... It started... They convinced uh, Django to play. And they started it, and Django played a beautiful solo, played great on it, but he, he wasn't that interested. Oh, okay, now I can, can go. And, of course, it went straight down onto the cylinder in those days. So as soon as you recorded it, you could just play it back. Yeah. So he was just about to leave and go back to the billiard hall, and they played it back. And it was the first time Django and any of them had ever heard themselves in a, in a recording. And Django was mesmerized by it, absolutely loved it. And he just wanted to do more and more. And he just thought it was an absolutely wonderful thing. Um, but the, 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 the reason, the whole idea of that, that group, it came about because they were a, a very famous band in America at the time was the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. I mean, they were hugely famous. And it was in the days where those big bands, the musicians were really stars in their own right. And singers were featured singers. They weren't the main part. They would do things like vocal refrains. And Paul Whiteman's singer was uh, a very young Bing Crosby. Hmm. They went to Paris. And within the group, there was Joe Venuti and Eddie Lang. And... And they also had, there's known as a group within a group, and Joe Venuti on violin, Eddie Lang on guitar, and they recorded all those wonderful uh, things together. So we went to Paris, and I don't know whether Django met them. I don't think he did, but Stefan did. And he and later on, Django, uh, sorry, Stefan recorded with, uh, with Joe Venuti about a year before I started working with Stefan. And that was really like a, an inspiration, you know, an all-string group. Because remember, we didn't have um, amplification then. So it could be very difficult for stringed instruments, especially an acoustic guitar, to play with drums and, and wind instruments, you know, saxophones and trumpets, trombones. It's very difficult to be heard. So they formed this group that was made up entirely of strings, violin, guitar, rhythm guitar, and bass, no drums. And... 
the, the Django later on brought in another guitar player because he said to, to Stefan, it's okay for you when you're soloing, you've got me and Joseph accompanying you. But when, when I solo, I've only got Joseph. So you've got a second guitar player in. So that was the, that was the reason for that. And mm. um, it was all, it was to, to do with the whole balance. And it was actually a very radical concept. Also, they only played for dancing. There was no such thing as a jazz concert back then. That didn't happen until much later, Benny Goodman uh, at the Carnegie Hall in New York. Um, uh, so they just the place for dancing. And they said sometimes they, they play at dances and um, people were dancing and then they put their fingers in their ears. They thought it was, it was a noise. <laughs> they couldn't kind of make out what, what they were doing. But Django's big musical hero in jazz was Louis Armstrong. And it's not immediately obvious, but when you know that, you can listen to a lot of Django's phrases and you can hear the Louis Armstrong cornet. It's, it's, it's classic Louis Armstrong. And they actually, they met him once. Louis Armstrong went to Paris and they managed to go up and see him at his, his hotel room and... Uh, <laughs> and they played for him <laughs> in, yeah. in his suite. <laughs> yeah, I think I've heard that. I've heard that it was like slightly awkward. Is that right? It, well, it was one. awkward, and I, I will. T I wasn't going to tell the story, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> Louis Armstrong was uh, very obsessed with his <laughs> his bowel movements. Oh wow! And Excellent. he used to take this special medicine for it, and he spent an awful lot of time sitting on the throne, as it were. There you go. So okay. they played in the in the kind of sitting room of this uh, hotel suite, and Louis Armstrong um, sat on the toilet doing what he had to do, smoking a joint because he was a big pot smoker. And yeah. they just played, and then when he came out, said, "Yeah, great man," <laughs> and that was kind of it. And they said it was really weird, very weird experience. <laughs> God, I didn't know it was. I didn't know that. I just heard. I I think I'd heard it. I'd heard it from a different. Yeah, just that, that it was awkward. I didn't know that that was exactly why it was awkward. That's excellent, <laughs> excellent information there. Well, it's good to say these things because one of the, one of the thing is there aren't many people around now that knew Stefan and yeah, know, especially yeah. um, spent a lot of time with him as uh, as I did and yeah. Um, so some of these stories can get lost completely or, or actually even, even worse, get completely distorted and, and, um, that's it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, as you, you, you said earlier, you know, you said, unfortunately, you know, some of the, those great violinists have, have gone, you can't actually talk to them. I said, well, the nearest thing you can is you can talk to me and I can, <laughs> I can tell you through and, and I don't make anything up because there's yeah. no point in making up anything that Stefan said, because the truth is the best. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't make up anything better than that, than, than the truth. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Um, hey, it'd be nice to know just how you first got involved with, with playing with Stefan. That came about because I had, uh, I'm, I'm really, apart from my dad showing me those first chords, I was really self-taught. And then I left school when I was 15, went on the road, then I went to America, then I came back. And then I, I was in London and a famous jazz club in London, the 100 Club, 
in Oxford Street, the home of the Sex Pistols later on, but this was a bit before that. And I played there sometimes because my dad used to play there on a regular basis in various bands. And the great American jazz guitar player, Barney Kessel, was going to be playing there. So the, the owner of the club, who I knew, said to me, you come and do the, the support act, the opening act with, with, uh, with the trio, piano-based drums, which I did. And I got to meet Barney and the beginning of a, a great friendship. And we worked together a lot later on but while I was there there were um, guitar player that I used to listen to when I was a kid on, on the radio called Ike Isaacs and at that time Ike was working with Stefan and I met Ike for the first time and then I used to go around to Ike's house and we would we would play together and we started doing a regular Thursday night gig uh, together and he left, by that time, Stefan, um, Ike left Stefan's group. But I'd, uh, um, I remember Stefan coming to Scotland and playing literally 10 minutes from where I live now uh, in Creef in Perthshire. And Ike was there and Ike said, come along, I'll meet Stefan. So I met Stefan. I think that was, that was probably about 1976. Yeah, 75, yeah, probably 76, I would think. And I met him there, and then it wasn't until 1979. Um, a guitar player that played with Stefan for, uh, for a long time was a big... Uh, um, had a lot to do with uh, Stefan's resurgence in his career. In his career. Uh, coming, you know, his, his kind of comeback was a guy called Diz Disley. And Diz couldn't make a tour in, in France and Belgium that was lined up. So Stefan's bass player at the time, who I worked with, suggested I go and do it. And Stefan went, oh, yes, I know him. I, I met him. <laughs> Sorry, that's my impression of Stefan. I can do, do more later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I know him. He's a friend of Ike. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool. um, so I went to France and I did some dates with, with Stefan. And the funny thing was the first date, the, the manager told me it was in Nantes, which is in northwest France. So I went to Nantes, and when I got there, there was nothing. I couldn't find the gig. So remember, this is before before mobile phones or anything, but I managed to get in a box and get some son teams out and <laughs> ring the manager. I said, look, I'm in Nantes. What's happening? And he said, oh, uh, it's not Nantes, it's Mont. I said, well, where's that? He said, it's just outside Paris. By this time, it's it's 5 p.m. So I thought, oh, well, that's it. I've missed the gig. So I thought I was going to be fired on the, the, the first gig because I didn't make it. But the next night, the gig was in Deauville, and I managed to make my way there, and we did that. We did the gig. And Stefan and I just hit it off straight away. He was really surprised. I was, what, 22? I think I was 22, 23. And... He would say a tune or he'd start playing a tune, and I just, this was in the dressing room, and I just play along. He'd go, How oh, you know this? How <laughs> oh, you know that tune? <laughs> and I said, Well, I grew up with this music, and, and he'd call other tunes, Do you know that? Oh, that's amazing. You know, you're 22 and you know, you know this music. So he was quite fascinated by that, and we got, we traveled together by train, and we just, just chatted, and he talked a lot about his life and his early childhood, and, I told him about how I got into music and things. 
And at the end of this trip, which was about a week, uh, he told me he had a, a tour of America um, in a, two or three months' time. And would I like to do it? So I did. So I went on that, that tour. Then there was a tour of the UK, then another tour of America. And that's kind of how it went on for 11 years, that whenever I didn't work with Stefan all the time, you know, whenever there were tours, but I did work with him a lot. Uh, and then in between, I just did my my, my other things. Uh, so after 11 years of doing that, I, I still don't know whether I was officially in the group or not, but I, <laughs> he just used to call me uh, when he needed me. But we used to do two or three quite extensive tours of America every year, and we do two tours of the UK. Sometimes I worked in uh, France with Stefan. We went to Australia once and played in India as well as mm -hmm. Stefan. So, yeah, it was an amazing time. And getting to record with him uh, as well. I think I must have been on over 20 albums with Stefan. It was an amazing thing. Something like this doesn't happen to every musician. So I know how how fortunate I was for to be in that position. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's amazing. He liked to record a lot, right? That's that's what I'm that's what I'm told. Yeah. He liked to record a lot. Yeah, he did. And he would record for anybody <laughs> <laughs> that wanted to to record him as um uh, and uh, as long as he got cash for it. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of the jazz musicians were like that then. And they made lots and lots and lots of records. Yeah. If you look at Oscar Peterson, I mean Oscar Peterson had specific recording deals. Stefan had a few over the years but he wasn't signed exclusively to anybody mm. so sometimes we'd be on tour in america and he'd say oh we've we've got um two days to make a, a record in san francisco at the studios for for somebody didn't know it was <coughs> um so we'd we'd go there and we'd, we'd sit down and he would start playing and sometimes we'd make the record in a day and very often it was the same tunes. <laughs> Never played exactly the same way. But that was another thing about Stefan. He had a, a repertoire that he really liked, and he didn't want to play lots and lots of different different tunes. That's mm. something another I got from him as well. Is you know if you've got tunes you like to play, and just keep kind of working on them, and until you get fed up with them, and then drop them and go back to them another time rather than just changing uh, all the time. And a lot, lot of that generation of jazz musicians were like that. I mean, how often has Oscar Peterson recorded tenderly or yeah. his tunes, you know? Um, uh, and it didn't matter because it was always different anyway and it'd be a different, a different lineup. There was never the definitive version of, of, of one tune. Django recorded Nuage, I think, nine times. I'm not sure, hmm. but he would have if if he'd have lived to to be an old man. I'm sure he would have recorded many, 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 many versions uh, of them. Yeah, that's interesting. It is something that's that's seen that's sort of prevalent in jazz that I guess people from outside of jazz might not get. It's maybe you know, if you're from a pop, if you're a pop musician mm -hmm. or rock musician or, or or anything outside of jazz the idea of the standard you know it's like a vehicle and like you say you can record it you play it thousands of times and it'll never be the same 
It's an interpretation, yeah. different interpretations of it. That's mm. why I always have to correct people when, when they say, oh, it, is that a cover of such yeah. a... No, no, it's not a cover because I'm not yeah. trying to play it like the original. It's an interpretation, and next time I play it, it'll be, be another interpretation. Mm. Uh, but but that's, you know, that, that's, that's how it was, it was done, really. Um, what, was, what was Stefan like as a... Oh, I've got a, I've, I says my internet connection is unstable. It's an absolute classic. Um, what was Stefan like as a band leader? <laughs> Very easy. And if he liked your playing, and that's the only it, the only way you got to work with Stefan is if he liked your playing and he liked you as a person, mm. and you had to have those two things going. It didn't matter how great somebody played. If he didn't like you, uh, he, he didn't really want to hang out with you. So you had to be somebody that he was he felt comfortable with and he liked the way you played and it was sympathetic to, to what he was doing uh, as well. So I was fortunate that Stefan liked me and he liked my playing and he didn't want me to play any other way. Yeah. So he never ever told me what to play. Sometimes he'd make suggestions uh, about something. So, you know, at the end of that solo, why don't you do a big chordal, uh, you know, um, chromatic thing up to the top? He said, "Be really dramatic. You'll get lots of applause." <laughs> he'd say things like that. But a, a lot of arrangements, we did those amongst us. Uh, you know, I came up with uh, ideas for arrangements so that we weren't just. Um, playing the same tunes over and over again. We were coming up with nice ideas to make them interesting. Um, when I first worked with Stefan, there was, um, it was myself and French guitar player, Marc Fosse, yeah. and left-handed guitar player, sadly passed away last year. And between us, we came up with arrangements. Marc had great ideas and he was, his playing was very sympathetic with Stefan's. After a while, we started to share the gig, and it became a one gig, one guitar uh, gig. Yeah. So playing with Stefan as a band leader, there were certain things you, you had to be very professional, and the way you presented yourself on stage had to be uh, in a certain way. I'm still like it. I'm still, you know, I, I know I couldn't imagine just walking on the stage and ignoring the audience. I'd walk on stage, and first thing I do is acknowledge the audience and give everyone a smile and a little bow and uh, just kind of make that connection and he knew he knew exactly what he wanted and what was important to him was connecting with the audience and he was the first jazz musician that I'd worked with that really um, concentrated on that he would sometimes not play something because he thought I don't think the audience will like that you know whether I liked it or he liked it wasn't uh, uh, wasn't the thing. It was it was about the audience. So he had this wonderful way of projecting and communicating with his music, and he liked things to be the same as well. So a lot of the things that we played that sounded improvised sometimes were quite worked out and and a little complicated, but they were worked out I would have to give him little cues every so often because he was always afraid of um, losing his place you know, <laughs> thinking oh is am I playing the second chorus or is this the third chorus or so I had little cues that I would give him 
So we come to the end of, of one chorus, and if I played, then he knew he had one more to go. Uh, but there were special little cues that, that we had. And, and if I missed one, he didn't like it. <laughs> oh, you, you missed it. You missed it. I, uh, I became very distracted when you, when you did that. <laughs> Yeah, but he wasn't uh, he wasn't someone to tell you what to what to do and how to play. I remember once actually I we were playing we didn't play a lot of uh, the hot club music. We we played all uh, jazz standards, great American songbook. But we were playing one of the Reinhardt Grappelli tunes and it could have been something like Swing 42 or something. And it was just me and the bass player. It was just one guitar but by that time and Stefan started really going for it, and I went into more of a, a Le Pomp style of of, uh, of, of uh, accompanying, of rhythm, because normally my, my style is more kind of American style, and um, I could see him getting agitated. He said, oh, don't heavy four in a bar. You know, I like it to be be softer because his his playing had. If you listen to those early records with with Django, the Hot Club. I mean, Stefan was such a strong swinging player. I mean, he always was. He continued to be, but what he wasn't at that time was the virtuoso that he became later on. And even in the time that I worked with Stefan from nineteen seventy nine to nineteen ninety, I heard him. I heard him getting better. Better and better. It's quite amazing. Somebody in their eighties, you know, and uh, just improving all, all the time. Not just getting more virtuosic in their playing, but the way he played, his tone, his, his sound was just uh, just quite amazing. And uh, yeah, just the way, just that that beautiful lyric way that lyric lyricism in his playing was. Was quite amazing. Nobody, nobody like him. Hmm. I I liked it sometimes when we played with. We'd sometimes do things with orchestras. We did a few with um, Michel Legrand, where he conducted the orchestras, and and also I played on some of the Houdemenuin recordings as well that were recorded at Abbey Road. And you'd go in there, and there'd be an orchestra, <clears throat> and all all the violin players in the orchestras would all stand up. As soon as he walked in the room, it was quite amazing, and they tapped the bows and, and everything, and hmm. they were in awe of him. And at the end of every take, you could see them, they'd all like, tap their bows on the on the stands and sort of looking over to him. Bravo, maestro! Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Why do you reckon he got better through age? What 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 is it about Stefan and his playing that that made that happen? Do you think? I think he was enjoying life. He was enjoying the life that he had. <clears throat> he was well looked after. He was surrounded by a small group of people that were very uh, protective and loving towards him. Um, he had an audience all over the world that loved him. Uh, he liked to eat three big meals a day. <laughs> and... Uh, have some wine in the evening, and uh, he'd have a, a, a couple of glasses of whiskey <laughs> in the evening before we went on stage. 
And I just think he, in, he was enjoying life so much. And when you think, if you go back, we don't have time to go into it, but um, he had an absolutely horrendous childhood. He, he, he was brought up in an orphanage. His mother died when he was six. He was brought up in two orphanages. His father went off to the First World War. Uh, he lived in real poverty. And that never left him. The thought of that never left him. And I, I think that he, he had gratitude for the life he had and and for the music and the being being able to do that and i i really think i think that's really what it was it was it just like he it was always there but it it just it was like a flower blossoming just opening up it mm. it was wonderful even after i worked with him i met him the very last time i saw stefan was in sydney australia he was on tour with the, the trio we had at the time and I was on a solo tour, and we were staying in the same hotel. And we we sat down and, and we we chatted for a while. But I heard some some recordings of him recording at that at that time, and it was it was phenomenal. It was just yeah. so wonderful because he was enjoying life. I, th I think that's mm. the only thing I can put it down to. Hmm, that's something to take away, isn't it? <laughs> you know. <laughs> As a musician, you got to try and enjoy life. I mean, maybe you know, it's, uh, everyone's got different circumstances, but it's, you, you, you think it would be his 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 temperament and his uh, and and his life around him that made him better, rather than anything technical. No, I think that was already there. Yeah. I think that was there. It was just kind of kind of uh, blossoming, really. Mm. I mean, mm, yeah. Stefan could be—he could be difficult at times. He could be quite <laughs> grumpy on the road if he got if he got tired, as he would would do. He knew that he could be grumpy around us. We wouldn't take it personally, and uh, <laughs> sometimes I'd get grumpy back with him. <laughs> yeah. We used to yeah. have arguments, actually. You know, when I yeah. think about it, you know, sometimes we—he'd say something, and I said, "No, Stefan." <laughs> not yeah. like that and then we, we yeah and we, we, we'd have a little argument about it and maybe the next day he wouldn't talk to me but the day after it'd be all, all back again <laughs> that's how close we were, how close we were. <laughs> yeah it's part of friendship isn't it so you know it's testament to the fact that you were friends basically having arguments yeah I think that was important all the people that were around him and it was just a small group of people they were all we're all all friends yeah. Hey, um, what's a what's a standout a standout story of your time with Stefan Grappelli? Something. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot because I'm sure you got loads. <laughs> what stands out? The one, the the story that stick comes straight to your head. I can. Well, there was a time I'd I'd been working with Stefan for about a year or so, and my dad said to me, "What what advice has Stefan given you?" A bit like you said, you know, what's he like as a band leader? What does he tell you? What what advice has Stefan given you? And I said, well, he hasn't given me any advice. He said, well, what do you talk about when you're travelling together? I said, oh, all kinds of things. You know, sit on a plane, Stefan's reading Le Monde or, or something. <laughs> and I've got my Walkman on, as they used to be in the, the, those days. So. Um, and, and then we'd talk about something he 
usually about he'd say how terrible the food was or something. We just talk about things generally or talk about the gig yeah. the night before or where we're going to go next, people we know, just general stories. So my dad said, well, you know, this is an amazing opportunity. You should ask him for some advice. Yeah. So one, we were on a plane on tour in America and I thought, oh, this, this could be the moment. He, was sitting, he just finished reading. He took his glass, reading glasses off. And I said, Stefan, I've got to ask you this. I said, is there any advice you would give me? And he said, yes, my dear. And I'm sitting waiting for this, these words of wisdom. He said, never tell your wife where you keep your money. <laughs> Went back to reading his book again. <laughs> that was... <laughs> That was it. He would come out with many, many funny things like that. He had a fantastic yeah. sense of humor. Yeah. And he always saw that the funny side of things, if he did have a little grumpy moment when, you know, because he was tired from being on the road and just had to say something or do something that, you know, make him laugh. And I think that's one of the things that we, we got on well because I used to make him laugh a lot of the time. <laughs> and, uh, and then he, he would say very funny things. He, he would observe everything around him and then just come out with so many things that were, were quite hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't think of any at the moment. If I could, I might not even be able to repeat some of them. But uh, he was a very, very, very special man. There was, there's only one. There'll never be another. Mm. And I just can... I have such gratitude for having been a part of his life and his musical life um, for those 11 years. Well, actually more. I toured with 11 years, but I knew him for longer than that. And it's a, it's a, carry on, carry on. No, as, as I said, uh, for a musician, it's not many of us that have an opportunity like that. When, you, when you're so young, as I was at the time, 22, and then I'm working with somebody who's 70, uh, in his early seventies, uh, one of the most, one of the key figures of jazz—not just jazz in Europe, but jazz generally—and I'm sitting on stage with him every night, playing. I'm sitting in Django's chair, and uh, what, what an amazing, amazing thing that is! And I used to every evening I would sit there, we were this close to each other. And I used to say to myself, you must remember as much as you can of this and try and have some kind of recall uh, when you're older. So the, I know there's video, you go on, go on YouTube, there's loads of videos of, of us playing together. But sometimes I manage to do that. I just have this recall. I can still get close to a violin, those little scrapes of the bow. Those are, we try to obliterate those after the first few years. There's a lot of them at the beginning, but you could just that little little scrape on there that nobody else can hear. If if you're six feet away, you wouldn't hear it. But I would actually hear those little those little noises uh, in the violin. Uh, magical, absolutely magical. Yeah. So you you I mean I know you said. Um... You you asked him for some specific advice, you know. What advice are you going to give me? He, didn't, he said he just, he just he just reeled off a joke. But what do you reckon you did actually learn 
or what would be like a standout thing that you feel like you learned or took away from your experience with Grappelli? I, mm, I think the biggest thing is communication. Being able to communicate the music with the audience. And that doesn't mean you, you go out on stage and go, <laughs> jazz hands and do a tap dance and now a joke. <laughs> it's, it's getting the music across to the audience. Communication. I know many, many wonderful musicians who have a problem with that. When they, they, they're great and they, they blow me away, their, 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 their music. And they go on stage and they can't seem to get the music across to the, the, the audience. And that's what Stefan had. Everybody in that audience, it kind of sounds corny, but, had that, but they had that feeling that he was playing for them. A bit like when I first heard uh, those recordings of Django as a kid, it was like he was talking to me. Mm. Is that that communication? And that was the, the that was the thing. He used to say something. He's saying about you know as being a band leader. He did used to sometimes say one of his favorite quotes that he got from Maurice Chevalier. He said Maurice Chevalier, Chevalier gave him this piece of advice once. He said, Stefan, start well, end well, and the middle will take care of itself. <laughs> and he used to relay that to me. And uh, I'm telling you, that it, he always used to say, my chevalier told me. He would never say it as if it's something he made up himself. So he, with respect to chevalier, he, he gave him the credit for it. And so whenever I tell that story, I say, this is a story that Steph, this is something Stefan told me that Maurice Chevalier told him. Not because I'm name dropping, but we, <laughs> must, give, we must give credit. Actually, a lot of people yeah, don't know who Steph Grabelli and, and Maurice Chevalier are now. So, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, um, well, I think you've got to go quite soon, don't you? Yeah, I've got to head off probably in about five minutes. Okay, well let's let's wrap it up. But just just lastly, how have you been doing during our global pandemic? We've managed to get all the way through this interview without talking about it. I'm really <laughs> proud of proud of us. But I felt like I would slam it in anyway. Have you been have you been getting on? Well, as you can see, I've got a studio here here at home, and in 2009 I started uh, online interactive guitar school with a company called artist works in california and that's been pretty a pretty successful thing and it's something that i've kind of balanced with my life as a touring musician uh, because in you know I've, I've been on the road such a lot and traveling all over the world but i've managed to kind of do this balancing balancing act um juggling act uh, between that and also with my, my Patreon site, which I have for my, for my patrons, I create music there. So with those things, and I also, I've been writing guitar instruction books um, for a company called Fun Fundamental Changes. I wrote three last year, and I'm just on another one now. And so I've actually been very, very busy. And the way I looked at it was, okay, we have a little panic at first because... When you've been on the road since you were 15 and suddenly you, you can't even go out of your neighborhood, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of a strange feeling. Uh, 
But I started thinking of all the times I was on the road and think of all the things that I wanted to do that I couldn't do because I was on the road. I've done a few live stream things on my Patreon site. I do a monthly hangout uh, with my patrons. And uh, because I've been doing this for, for a long time, I've recorded lots of things. I've written quite a lot of music. So um, royalties rescue me every so often <laughs> as well. So from that, that point of view, I know um, many of my musician friends, have, it's, it's been the real and continues to be a real struggle for them. And, and then there's the uncertainty of how things will be after this because it's not going to be a matter of just going back. Yeah. And, but it does make you rethink things and um i'm fortunate that i live in a very very nice part of scotland on the, the edge of the highlands so you know i can walk up in the hills with my dog and every day so uh again i you know i'm i'm, I'm very fortunate in that but yeah my just my focus has changed i just thought well all those things i couldn't do on the road now's your now's your chance to do those and yeah. uh it's a little I find that actually playing, because I play probably about four four days a week when I come in here for my students and various things that I'm I'm recording and filming, but I play for very short lengths of time. And I find sometimes I sit down, start playing a tune, I get to the middle eight, and I've kind of had enough. <laughs> I go, I'll go and make a cup of tea now. Go and put the cut on. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting. My first. My first gig this year, uh, it's been postponed a couple of times, is at Ronnie Scott's in London. Ah, um, nice. I think it's 17th of August. I'm doing a solo night there, which I've played, played many, many years, many times over the years. Then I'm going, if all goes well, I'm going back to New York end of August to do my annual guitar retreat in, in the Catskills and do some dates with... Uh, Frank Vignola, we have a guitar duet yeah. that we, we work together a lot in, in the States. Oh, yeah, nice. Uh, then I'm coming back and I've got a, a short tour in in the UK in October with uh, with Martin Simpson, folk singer-guitarist. Ah. We work together from time to time. And some dates with Ulf Vikanius, my Swedish guitar player friend. We've got some possible dates, I think, in, in Denmark. Uh, I don't think we're going to get out to back to Asia this year for our usual trip to Japan and Korea. And when, when musicians talk about it, it'd be great when we get back to how it was. And I don't say anything because usually, because I, I don't want it to go back to the way it was because I think we can have something that's even better. And I think because of, because of this, because of the internet and, I mean, I've been doing this for, for a long time, since 2009, so I'm used to this. But often trying to explain to a lot of people what I do, yeah, you can study with me online. Or, um, you know, you can, you can become a patron and you can, we can connect that way. To some people it was alien, but now even something as simple as people of my generation and older doing Zoom with their grandchildren, yeah. it's, it's no, it seems to have got people into to understand understand that. We'll see how I'm more thinking about how audiences will be about going to venues again. How comfortable they will feel uh feel about that. Um so yeah, it's gonna be I think it's gonna be a, a little bit of a, a long haul, but 
it'll be exciting to see what's going to happen anyway. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think there's a lot of positives to, to take from it. Oh, there's yeah, a lot of learning yeah. that everyone's everyone's done. And I think there there are good things about online. Like there are positives that you get from online learning that you don't, that you can't get in person. I think that just, to, I know you got to go, but I've found through teaching, I've been teaching groups online and I feel like people <clears throat> basically have that anonymity which is like, mm. actually, I can learn something new that's really difficult, but I don't have to show it off in front of a big group of people. <laughs> I just think stuff like that is, you know, it was, it's, you couldn't do that in a, in a, you couldn't do the same things that you, you know, in a, in a real yeah, room. The, the, other, the other thing with, with, with my site, because we have a video exchange uh, section there. So, ah. so students can, can submit a video on the site for me and then i review it and i film a response but everyone gets to see it and so now we've i've got over three thousand of those now from from all the years i've been been doing it hmm. but the fact is you can you can be really focused you can hmm. just focus on one thing so they uh, my, my students say well i'm having a little bit of trouble with this one thing here and they'll play it, and it they may even send me a video that only lasts 45 seconds or something and with with something, could you help me with this? And then I'll just film something and explain it. Whereas if you you're with uh, with a with somebody uh, just you know face to face in, in a room, and especially if there's other students there as well, um, it can all kind of get a little bit rambling. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. So it can be very very focused. You can pinpoint things. Maybe I should join your Patreon. That sounds good. <laughs> Yeah, try to come get and join the it, guitar. please. Yeah, anyone that wants to join it, just go to my website, martintaylor.com, and you'll see something, become a patron. And um, it, it's fun. I've, I've got so many videos. I film here every week new things. I interview other guitar players. Um, I, I put up some of my live footage that um, isn't on, you, you won't find on, on the internet. And some of the things that I've filmed over the years all around the world. And and we have a hangout every every month with an open mic as well, anyone that wants to play. And it's not just for guitar players. Some of my patrons right. don't play anything at all. <laughs> but all it right. is quite biased toward guitar players. So if you yeah, I, sure. I I warn anyone that doesn't play guitar. <laughs> yeah, you might you might get bored. <laughs> <laughs> with guitar stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might overload of guitar stuff. I know what guitarists are like, eh? Um, That's true. Well, nice nice to chat to you, Martin. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Yeah, good to chat with you. You too. All the best. Maybe see you, see you in London. Cheers. Yeah, hopefully. See you, man. Bye now. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Jazz Violin Podcast. You've been listening to me, Matt Holborn, and my guest, Martin Taylor. Such a pleasure to talk to Martin about his time with Grappelli and his music. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so on Patreon. You'll be able to find all the details of that in the description below. But well, I'll just say it anyway www.patreon.com forward slash Matt Holborn. Uh, you can get involved with either just helping me out with keeping the podcast running or you can get involved with my jazz violin practice club where we meet up every week and practice jazz violin together. I run through scale exercises and 
improvisational techniques that will help you find your own creative voice in your jazz violin playing. Also, if you play guitar, you should get involved with Martin's Patreon. I'm sure that that is absolutely amazing. I am thinking of being a patron on his site as well, because I play a bit of guitar. Maybe you know that, maybe you don't. I'm not a very good guitarist. I can play a little bit of um, La Pompe, the sort of Django style rhythm stuff, but you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay me to do it. Not yet anyway. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I really appreciate everybody who tunes in and sends me nice messages saying how much they love the podcast. I am eternally grateful to you. Thank you very much, and I will see you again next time. Bye.